every Monday to Friday. This is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Money Talk. Good morning and a warm welcome to Money Talk on Wednesday the 27th of September. It's the middle of the week in the final week of the third quarter. This podcast is sponsored by Surfing Group, which is headquartered in Singapore and offers online financial services to 30 million customers across 10 countries. And thank you for making this podcast one of the most listened to financial podcasts in Hong Kong and Singapore. In today's business and finance headlines, the crisis at China Evergrande Group has deepened after the company's mainland units confirmed it failed to repay an onshore bond. The mainland property developer said its subsidiary, Henga Real Estate uh, Group, defaulted on a 4 billion yuan in principle plus interest due to September the 25th. In a statement Monday, Henga said it would actively negotiate with bondholders to find a solution. Hong Kong's exports in August posted their longest streak of monthly declines on record as demand remained weak and China's recovery faltered in the face of further declines for the property sector. Exports from Hong Kong dropped 3.7% year-on-year to 358 billion US dollars, easing from a 9.1% fall in July, and it marked a 16th consecutive month of declines. U.S. consumer confidence declined for the second consecutive month in September as people's short-term outlook for business, the labor markets and income conditions worsened. The Conference Board Consumer Confidence Index declined again in September to 103, down from an upwardly revised 108.7 in August. Expectations fell back below 80, which is the level that historically signals a recession within the next year. Global equities sold off on Tuesday as investors braced for interest rates to be higher for longer, while the dollar jumped to a 10-month high and Treasury yields hit new 16-year highs. At the start of September, traders were betting that US interest rates will be 4.2% by the end of next year, implying as many as five standard interest rate cuts. Now traders in the futures markets are expecting rates to be 4.6% by the end of 2024, implying four cuts or less. The Fed's dot plot of future interest rate projections by Fed officials shows they are forecasting just two rate cuts in 2024. On today's programme, I'm joined by Enzio von Fahl, Capital Preservation Specialist at Financial Shield, and Louis Kois, Chief Asia Economist at S&P Global Ratings. With a view from Japan is John Byrne, Vice Chair of Research at the Asian Development Bank Institute. And if you want to get in touch, please go to my website, peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. You can send any questions or comments there, as well as finding my daily newsletter with more business and finance news from across Asia. On Wall Street, US stocks were lower as data on consumer confidence and home sales showed the US economy may be finally coming under stress from the sharp series of interest rate rises. The S&P 500 slid 1.5% to 4,274, closing below 4,300 for the first time since June the 9th. The Dow lost 388 points, or 1.1% to 33,619 in its worst day since March. The index also closed below its 200-day moving average for the first time since May. The Nasdaq Composite pulled back 1.6% to 13,064, and the Nasdaq Composite is down nearly 7% in September, while the S&P 500 has lost more than 5% in the month so far. The yield on the benchmark 10-year US Treasury was up two basis points at 4.56%. That's a new 16-year high as bets increase that interest rates will remain higher for longer. Yields on the 30-year note added four basis points to 4.69%. That's the highest since 2011. The move up in rates helped propel the US dollar higher. The US dollar index rose 0.2% to 106.17 and hit its strongest level since November last year. Sterling fell to a six-month low of 1.21.5 against the dollar on Tuesday. The Japanese currency sank 0.1% to 149 yen against the dollar. That's the lowest level since October 2022. The Chinese yuan was flat at 7.31 renminbi versus the dollar. Hong Kong stocks continued their slide. The Hang Seng Index tumbled 259 points, or 1.5%, to a 10-month low of 17,470, and the index has lost 7.7% so far in the third quarter. The Tech Index lost 1.7%. The Hang Seng China Enterprises Index fell 1.6% to its lowest since November the 29th. 
On the mainland, the Shanghai Composite dropped 0.4% to 3,102. Property stocks continued to slump after China Evergrande failed to repay an onshore bond and was unable to meet regulatory requirements to issue new bonds. Shares of China Evergrande, which plunged almost 22% monthly, tumbled another 8.1% on Tuesday. The Hang Seng Mainland Properties Index fell 1.3%, and it does look like we're going to see further falls at the open. Futures markets are projecting a decline of another 50 points or so for the Hang Seng. That's about a third of a percent, uh, projecting the open to be about 17,415. And you can get more details on the latest market movements in my daily newsletter at peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. Every Monday to Friday, this is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Peter Lewis. On this Wednesday morning, let's welcome our regular weekly commentator, Enzio von Fahl, Capital Preservation Specialist at Financial Shield. Morning, Enzio. Morning to you, Peter. And also joining us is Louis Coyce, Chief Asia Economist at S&P Global Ratings. Welcome back, Louis. Morning, Peter. Let's start in Hong Kong. Hong Kong's exports in August posted their longest streak of monthly declines on record as demand remained weak and China's recovery faltered in the face of further declines for the property sector. Exports from Hong Kong dropped 3.7% year-on-year to 358 billion US dollars. That's eased from a 9.1% fall in July. It was also better than the median estimate of economists for a 6.1% drop, but it did mark a 16th consecutive month of declines. That's a record uh, streak longer than the streaks recorded during the Chinese stock market crash in 2015 and 16 and the aftermath of the Asian financial crisis in the late 1990s. Among major destinations, exports declined the most in South Korea. They were down 35%. They were down almost 21% to Taiwan and 20% to Japan. Shipments to mainland China fell by 1.5%. And imports, they fell 0.3% year on year. That eased from a 7.9% drop in July. Um, and among trading partners there, purchases dropped largely from Malaysia, about down to about 37%, and they're down about 15% from Vietnam. From mainland China, they were up 4.3%. Um, NCO and Louis, um, what does this tell us? I mean, does it tell us more about uh, overseas demand than Hong Kong, or what does it tell us about both? Uh, well, I think it's it's in the context of my economic clock, it's just saying that the global economic time continues worsening. We have an excess demand for money and an excess supply of goods, which is intensifying indeed. Uh, going back to Louis' home country, Holland, in their most recent trade monitor, trade volumes in July were down by an annual 3.2%. But I think one key reason for this on the Hong Kong side is because of a major displacement of China trade. China, as we all know, has been a boom man in the US. So what's happened is that the Chinese are now beginning to export more and more from the likes of Vietnam, Indonesia, etc. Um, into the into America, mm. and that then is circumventing what's com- coming to Hong Kong. It's it's they're making it in Vietnam, in Indonesia, and then selling straight to the U.S. These the parts of the supply chain. So I think that's a very important structural force to be looked at. And Hong Kong's manufacturing sector, its own manufacturing sector, it's quite small, isn't it? Well, the city it, yeah, really yeah. is a, a conduit, as you're saying, for goods between Always China and trade. the rest Absolutely. of the world. Yes, yes. I'm glad to hear NZO referred to our Central Planning Bureau, which is not a joke. They are the ones who publish that data ah. on, on global trade. It's called the Central Planning Bureau. Which oh, we right. still have They're Dutch, in aren't our they? Capitalistic well, yes. you. But I just wanted to add uh, <laughs> one one point on that. You know, on these numbers, right? So when you when when exports go down. year on year in US dollar terms at a time that in my very rough estimates prices are falling about 12 to 15 percent at the moment. It actually means that in real terms, so if you look at the tonnage or like numbers Mm. of containers, we're actually back into positive territory. Like our work looking at seasonally adjusted data on volumes, as in taking out those price increases, suggests that very broadly speaking, in Asia, we have started to see exports bottoming out. They're not racing ahead, but Mm. it seems to worsen. 
So that's that's a good sign then. Uh, at least it shows that um, there is demand there, and it's not so much that it's a Hong Kong sort of problem. It's uh, if anything, it's a, it's a global problem. It's a global problem, and if you look at that data for the big Asian exporting economies, like the manufacturing economies, like Japan, Taiwan, South Korea, China, it's it's pretty similar the pattern that you see over there. Interesting. Our economy overall, though, it's still pretty sluggish, isn't it? It was, what, 1.5% in the, in the second um, quarter. Um, there's various campaigns to try and boost it, this Night Vibes campaign to try and get people to go and spend more on the, on the nighttime um, economy that the Hong Kong government is very keen on. Do you think these initiatives are on the right track? Hard to say. I mean, um, I was out... I, I I went back home at 9.30 yesterday, leaving Central. And that's what Mr. Chan is complaining about, you know, people like you who are in bed by 9.30. Well, yes. actually, it was late for me, but, it, <laughs> uh, it, you know, I, I don't know. I think in principle it makes sense, right, because many other, if you go in, if you look at if you spent in time in Europe or other places, even Tokyo, uh, there is there are things going on in the evening and in Hong Kong. I hear that it was like that as well twenty years ago. Mm-hmm. I I don't know when when we say that pe- have people changed their habits or are are the people who enjoyed Hong Kong nightlife have most of them moved away? I I don't know. I I, I mean I have to say I don't go out after 9.30, but I do have to get up quite early. But I know lots of people now whose evening dining habits have changed. They're now eating earlier because it came about during the pandemic. We were forced to eat earlier, weren't we, Bern? Because everything was closing down um, now. So people have got used to that and and aren't sort of really changing their their habits. I think during the pandemic, you know, Hong Kong also did its best, I'm sorry to to say it, but to kind of destroy the nightlife sector, Mm -hmm. right? And a lot of those places have closed down. Well, like my father's dead. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. you know, but there's a there's a bit of a displacement going on in that. But um, I also think that it's this income insecurity. Now, first of all, a lot of people have left Hong Kong. We know that, especially the the expats who are very much feeding these sort of happy hour things. Um, but also, there's just a lot of income insecurity. Jobs are not they they don't have the stability that they had. You know, Grandpa talking in my day here. So um, I think that's also also p- putting part of the pajama pr- um, brigade out of the woodwork. <laughs> Of course, the other yeah. thing is that, you know, people are, are seeing things like the stock market, which is, you know, a pretty bad performer. They're seeing home prices fall. Um, they're not really in the mood to go out and, and spend See, a lot at the moment, are but, they? You know, just to play devil's advocate a little bit, uh, it all of this is true, but booking restaurants is still not always so easy. I mean, it's not that people don't go out. It's just that they seem to go home earlier i think in part it's also the what what is on offer at one's screen or or television also matters i mean people Mm. don't go to the cinema anymore but they they rather just sit at home and watch the movie on the tv screen right so Mm. it's uh, structural changes again yeah yeah yeah. Mm. Well, uh, restaurants themselves have changed. I mean, if you go and out for a meal now and try and eat at 9.30, the waitresses are getting you to eat quickly and yes. they're getting the breakfast menus out for the yes. next yes. morning. Yes. So yes, absolutely. It's not so easy to do it anyway now, no. even, so even if you a, want to. It's a little bit of a chicken and egg problem, right? So, yes. I mean, I'm, you know, I, 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 I find it uh, uh, laudable. I think it, it, it's good that the government looks at it and is trying. Like, but uh, mm. It's going to take a while, probably. Mm. The other problem we have, the base rates here, it's five and three quarter percent it was left left unchanged after the fed yes. left rates on hold but how much of this now are we in sort of restrictive territory there's been a big debate hasn't there about what is the neutral rate anyway for for interest rates no one seems to be quite sure other than it must be higher than what it was before uh, before the pandemic well i'm i'm sure that it's it's having an effect but i would also put my hand in the fire and say that we've got to get rid of this 15% property tax, the stamp duty, because that's, uh, and according to some leading politicians here in Hong Kong, that's very much at the heart of why things aren't getting on. So even if you cut rates, the, the, the servicing is still quite high relative to one's, to one's increasingly insecure income anyway. And on top of that, then if you're still paying this 15% stamp duty for a new flat, well, then there's no incentive to buy. Mm. So what about this relaxation of mortgage rules? The down payments have been eased now, haven't they? If you're a first-time home buyer, you can put just 10% down. Is that going to make a difference? 
It'll make a little bit of a difference. It's probably not going to move the needle. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, I agree with that. Mm. Okay. You see, again, it's basically, in my simplistic thinking, it's all a function of consumer confidence and income security. And if people are have the feel-good effect of a property market rising, the stock market rising, then they will spend. But if, they, if they're all a little bit wobbly as they are worldwide now, on those two psychological factors, behavioral economics, basically, then they're just nothing's really going to entice them to go out and, and, and shop like crazy and, and, and buy flats and all that. You know, mm. We have a bit of a tough time, right? Because we have U.S. monetary policy, but we don't have the U.S. stock market, and we don't <laughs> yes. have some of the other uh, The nice things that go with it. Of the US. Yes. Yeah. Like I mean, guns. this is an issue, isn't it? As I mentioned earlier in the introduction, I mean, bond yields now, 10-year bond yields, U.S. Treasury yields, 16-year highs. Um, people are starting to feel the squeeze, aren't they now? Because, you know, eventually oh. you, you have to refinance, um, and you're going to have to refinance at much higher levels. Just interestingly, on the U.S., I, I read recently that 90% of all these mortgages that they're still paying off are actually still fixed. So they have, they've, they're still at 3.6%. So yes. I don't know when that falls due. Do you, you have any? In the US? Yeah, in the US. Yeah. Do you have any well, idea? The US, the US has a quite distorted market in this sense. Um, most people have very long-running uh, fixed mortgages. Yes. And uh, so they are, that is actually Absolutely. the reason why the why the supply of housing in the U.S. is so low, because everybody is sitting on these mortgages. Nobody is walking away. And Nobody pay a high mortgage. Absolutely, yeah. So no one's going to go and buy a new house no. because you you will end up having to pay a Absolutely. much higher mortgage. So yeah. it ends up with the mortgage. So it's actually quite a distorted market. But this is unique, isn't it? It's not really. I don't think you really see this anywhere anywhere else in the world. It's a you know it's a, a factor of the U.S., mm. isn't it? But here we've got this sort of train wreck of a, of a property crisis developing with Evergrande and other mainland developers. We now hear that Evergrande has um, cancelled its creditor meetings. It's, it's defaulted um, on a domestic bond. We know that it's trying to restructure its offshore bonds, but it looks like the regulators have stopped that and said it can't um, ease new uh, issue new debt. How big a problem is this? I mean, you know, clearly we're seeing it here in Hong Kong as well, but obviously on the mainland um, as well. How big a drag is all of this on the economy? Well, it definitely doesn't help, uh, you know, it doesn't help in reinstilling confidence among home buyers, right? Like, think, I mean, to me, that's, you know, I don't know all that much about the financial aspects and, uh, and I'm, I, I don't hold evergreen bonds. But what I, you know, as a home, as somebody who's looking at the home market, and if you look at what's happening to um, housing sales, the, 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 the confidence of pr prospective buyers in China, this is clearly not helping because people worry that the companies that they need to buy off-shelf their apartment from won't be able to deliver those those or uh, complete those exactly yeah yeah it seems to me inconceivable that the regulators are going to not allow Evergrande to refinance itself. Uh, that somehow, whatever these rules are, they're, mm. they're going to have to make an exception for Evergrande, or because otherwise, the, the the prospect is Evergrande is going to go bankrupt if it can't refinance itself. Too big no to way fail, too big to jail. Yeah. So therefore, they're going to have to allow them, aren't they, to, to refinance? Uh, and there's still some time to do that. So I think it's got about 28 days um, before it's formally um, in default. But if, if it doesn't, it's it's the end, isn't it, for Evergrande? Yeah, and, and a disaster for the property market. Yeah, I think as you as you say, Peter, th there pr probably they will try. Well, I think the authorities will definitely continue to try to make sure that people receive their home, so that these buildings, uh, you know, w uh, are constructed. Whether they are willing to bail out foreign bondholders, I'm not sure. Mm. But what about um, just allowing the company to survive somehow so that it can continue as an ongoing concern? Otherwise, for mainland uh, people, it's going to be a big problem and for the economy, presumably. Yeah, so that's why mm. there is, they are making a distinction between, um, you know, what are the aspects of the company that, for the sake of the economy and for people, need to survive, which is the physical projects, mm. uh, on the one hand, uh, and are quite happy to have investors uh, take a haircut when they made uh, risky decisions. 
At the same time, it's interesting to note in yesterday's FT that the local investors' greed is, is prevailing yet again, and they're piling into debt, into credit instruments because of the nice high interest rates, not asking themselves why the coupons are so high on, on some of these debt instruments. So that's always... But I think it's more of a domestic sort of Japanese-style implosion issue, Lewis, not, not a global, or do you see it as having global ricochet effects? You mean the whether the, the Evergrande? Pro, the, the, well, I think it it's definitely affecting the you know the the, the reputation and the, the the vibes around China. Whether mm. they whether they affect you know people's perceptions of risk in the U.S. I, I, okay, it, it could well be. No, it could well be oh. because China is big and we have a lot and of the shadow bank institutional. You know, a lot of international institutional players who were, have been exposed are still exposed, right? So I think it's it's actually very reasonable what you say, Angio. Like the, the, this must have uh, international repercussions given this given the size yeah. of these exposures. Yeah. Do you see similarities between what's happening in China and what happened in uh, Japan starting in the 1990s and in many ways is still going on? I mean, Japan has never fully resolved um, its debt crisis, has it? Uh, which, which came about after, after its property market collapsed and it had a much bigger boom than, than China. Mm. Do you see similarities? I do a little bit. Um, I think that it's, it's a lot of this, as we were just discussing and wondering a little bit, is very much a domestically driven thing with the caveat that then you do maybe have more of the shadow banks which also have international tentacles you have hong kong property developers who may have been lured into this maybe forced into helping to buy bailout then you have the soe banks um, who again have correspondent banking relationships with banks abroad surprise surprise so there may be a bit more of an international angle than just the Japanese angle that I think was going on in the 90s in Japan. Mm. What about China's economy overall? We've got data coming out uh, at the end of this week. I think it's going to be released on Saturday, the, the PMI data. Economists are expecting it uh, to, to tick up and maybe the, the manufacturing PMI to return back into expansionary um, territory. But what, what do you think? What's your thoughts on? Uh, are you seeing us turning the corner on the economy in China? Well, so we published our outlook two days ago about China and the rest of Asia. We see the the cyclical weakening of the economy as that big property sector continues to be a very big drag on the economy, but also because of the export weakness and the fact that up until quite recently, the government was very stingy in terms of not spending according to its budget. Mm. Some of these forces have been turning around a little bit, especially on the government front. In August, we, we saw a pickup in, uh, in spending for the first time this year. And also in terms of, you know, policy more generally, there have been a lot of small measures that the government is using to try to improve confidence. We saw the data improving somewhat on the consumption side, on the investment side, on the industrial production side. As you mentioned, Peter, people expect things to get a little better. I don't expect a runaway recovery at all, but I also Absolutely. don't expect... China fought to fall off a cliff. The authorities, interestingly enough, don't seem to be as alarmed as, you know, um, one month, two months ago, many international observers were. There was a, the people oh. were screaming for a big fiscal or monetary stimulus. Mm. The authorities looked at it and said, you know, we see the economy is weakening. We will take measures to support the housing market. We will, we will try to boost confidence. They are very stingy. They're very frugal in terms of trying to pump money into the economy by fiscal and monetary means. They they are looking more at the financial risk side, and I don't see them changing their attitude on that. So we l will just have to accept China is China may not grow by five percent uh, no, ever anymore. But so you think that's the ceiling now? That, that's really uh, become a ceiling you know, for the economy. I, I would say trend-wise. Like I would say, potential output growth is not five anymore. We may still see a year during a in our cyclical boom or so, but trend-wise, probably five percent is over. Mm. And you've cut, I think, your growth forecast, haven't you, for China in your latest uh, quarterly outlook? We cut it to four point eight for this year right. and four point four for next Good. year. Right. 
I just think if I can add to that, Peter and Lewis, that for me the fundamental problem with China is less of the cyclical stuff that's going on, and not that what we've been discussing is only cyclical, but the market is there to serve the state. And that I find very disconcerting. The FT had a very good big read um, just this week about that, last Friday actually, and they said making markets serve the state's priorities is a big departure from past administrations and the pro-market position initially espoused by Xi after he became party leader in 2012. So tech sectors can't, they, they say we want to push tech sectors to serve the state. Well, they can't create the employment. They, the government can't really generate a juicy stock market rally that's going to get the feel-good factor coming back. And then you've got the paltry property sector. Again, people not feeling comfortable with, with, their, with their wealth sort of well-being or mindset. So um, I think it's very much this market is there to serve the state. I think that's the real problem of China, and that's next to the demographic, slowing, slowing productivity growth, foreigners leaving China is also going to weigh on, 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 on the growth, that, exactly what Lewis is saying. How do you get the market? How, how do they implement that, get the market to actually serve the states? I'm wondering what sort of measures they're well, thinking about you know, there. Like in, a way, in a way, China's government has been leading development and growth for a long time, right? I but I think mm. what NGO means is that uh, it's it has become more intrusive and people have been yes. really people were really taken aback by what the authorities did with regard to you know the what they call the platform sector right the, mm -hmm. the internet sector and some of the other uh, quite surprising right. i mean you know it makes perfect sense to to look at is our regulation and you know, is are the risks in a certain sector uh, too high, and we need to do something about it? That's totally legitimate. The U.S. is now doing lots of uh, probes ag against mm -hmm. these internet sectors, mm -hmm. but it came so sudden, and it and it it came, yeah. And it, I think that has re really damaged the reputation. Or see, people are people are nervous, wondering like, what will the state allow me to do? And uh, yes. Foreigners so, also, what, and that's what where this whole Nomura thing is not good, is it? With, 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 with the Nomura guy being detained in China. Yeah, these things definitely don't help. They don't help, yeah. no. That doesn't help Hong Kong's sort of role as a financial centre, because well, if, you're the head of, anyway. if you're the head of banking here uh, for an international mm. broker, it's going to make you think twice about travelling to mainland China, isn't it, when you hear stories about the head of Nomura's international division being detained in China and told not to leave uh, the mainland. Totally true, although mm. it should, please, it should be uh, acknowledged that his... Uh, his issue is not related to his tenure at Nomura, right? It is related to his tenure at ICBC. Yes, uh, sure. Ah, but even so, interesting. <coughs> even interesting. so, it, it does make you worry, doesn't it, that you could be traveling on the mainland and you know, could you yeah. be arbitrarily yeah. detained? Um, yeah. it, it affects Hong Kong, doesn't it? Because we're the sort of the center, uh, you know, the, the, the sort of the international financial center for China. Yeah. So, you know, the one country, two systems arrangement... Uh, which aspect is more important uh, is, uh, of those two? Yes. It's a big question. Mm. I mean, the, the, I'm wondering, is, is China going to become much more interventionist in its markets? Is that what it's saying when it wants the markets to serve uh, the, the states? Is that, is that what it's thinking of? I mean, it, we're seeing it already in terms of IPOs, aren't they? If, you're, uh, if you want to IPO in the electric vehicle sector or the tech sector, you get approved very quickly. If you're a widget maker, you're not going to get approved. I think so. And you were saying something before that. Yeah, that that that, that this is only good. This vice will only tighten in my mind um, because of Xi's mindset. And I think you were saying maybe I was misinterpreting you, Peter. But that a lot of the 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 bigwigs in China they're kind of just towing the line. Well, I think they kind of have to toe the line. I don't. I don't think that there's there's too much wriggle room there because to to Deng Xiaoping's let the free markets do what they will, which is to create eighty percent of all employment. That's out the window, mm. and I think it's it's going to really slow things down quite considerably in China. And what about foreign businesses? I mean, we've seen these reports mm -hmm. from the European Chamber of Commerce, from the American Chamber of Commerce. Um, they are very pessimistic about the outlook for uh, for China. They're removing investments to to other areas. They're See, urging displacing, the, yeah. 
Um, they're urging the regulatory authorities to try and improve the regulatory environment and make it um, clearer. Um, I presume when we hear talk about you know making the market serve the states, that really isn't going to boost uh, the, the the optimism of foreign businesses. Can't by definition. I'm too much of a one of von Hayek's last students to 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 welcome this. But Lewis, yeah, yeah. So I agree. However. If you look at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce in Shanghai and how where the, the answers to the poll, to, to the questions they ask their members, w when you worry about China or when, w why are you less optimistic than you were before, the main, the, their number, the number one reason is U.S. policies with regard to yes. China. I think, you know, also it, it is legitimate for us to complain about many aspects of Chinese policy making but when you when you look at for instance making national security issues more important in your overall economic mm. policy setting where's that coming from right we have to acknowledge that that China is facing a very different external hostile, hostile, environment yeah. and it's responding to that and so, so many of these uh, aspects are actually responses to uh, things being done by the U.S. and other economies. Do, do you see any sign of things improving? We've had um, this, this setup of these new financial and economic sort of committees that are going to talk to each other between the U.S. and China. Any sign of things improving? Well, I think that having been in that game for 15 years backstage in the 80s and 90s, I think the front stage yelling of the in the in the with this electoral cycle coming up, I call it the wheelchair race actually because they're both old crooks, but um, and the backstage selling, in other words, trying to sort of sit down and work things out. I think that the backstage is always more important than the front stage, and that's also where things are really done a lot more. But it's going to be a very very long slog, and I I don't think that the but once you get the, the masses heated up um, or the Congress heated up, and, and I'm sure in China there's also a lot of anti-Americanism, just like in, in China, in, in the U.S. there's anti-Chinese um, going on, that it's very difficult to quell that. Um, it's, this is not, we're not sort of expecting a, a Kissinger-Nixon 1972 rapprochement anytime at all. What about the EU, Louis? They're, they're sort of saying they're going to take a stronger um, attitude towards China as well because of their huge trade deficit, about 400 billion euros um, at, at the moment. And they're, they're saying that that's because of unfair practices and subsidies. Um, but Valdis Dombrovskis, who's been in China uh, the last sort of few days, is talking about the EU taking a much more robust attitude. So it's not just the US, is it? No, it's not just the US, but... I just happened to talk to uh, uh, representatives of the EU yesterday. The, the EU does want it to be, to be known. The, the, the EU wants people to realize, yes, we are also becoming, you know, 15 years ago, economic policy was about efficiency, globalization, and how can we improve those things, right? Nowadays, there is much more emphasis on um, we as a government are going to take interventionist measures to maybe bring production onshore, do all kinds of things. But the EU does want to make the point that we're not like the US. We are, uh, it's still largely about economics, less mm. so about, you know, geo geopolitics mm. or like rivalry between two top dogs. And uh, no. so, so I th and they, they continue to repeat, we want to continue to engage with China, we don't want to decouple. So yes, th the overall economic landscape in in the world is changing, right? Everybody mm. is, everybody is feels they have a mandate to uh, to politicize economic policy, and the EU does that too. But it, I would still, I still see a, 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 an interest to be seen as different from the US. It's do you, not, yeah. Do you see that, Enzio? Is is the EU maybe a more subtle version of what the US is doing? I mean, you know, you know it doesn't uh, doesn't call it decoupling, does it? It calls it de-risking. That's the phrase that Ursula von der Leyen come up yeah. with. Uh, are they being maybe more subtle than the US is? I think so. But the trade deficit, I'm I'm 
quite convinced, having written a book on the U.S. trade deficit being a function of the U.S. multinational success in China, I think this must also be the case for, the, say, the Germans, which is obviously a home base of mine, because a lot of these German cars are actually made in China now, so why export them from Germany? So down goes that tr chunk of the trade surplus, if Germany even has one with China. I don't know anymore. Mm. Um, but I think at least it's cooler heads may prevail in um, Europe, you must not for, you must never forget that Europe never had a Bhakti versus Vallejo or a Citizens United. In other words, where campaign finance dictates so much of what these politicians, in fact, in many ways, this banana republic is now doing because it's so much driven by money interests in America that, that in my day the lobbies were not really in the hill on the hill. Now it's it's just teeming with lobbyists. Um. Louis, so, so just to wrap things up, you mentioned your um, quarterly outlook for the Asia-Pacific mm -hmm. region. We talked a bit about China. What about the rest of Asia? What do you see there? Yeah, we see actually quite a bit of resilience in the rest of Asia. Um, you know, we have higher interest rates, we have weak global trade, weak China, but like going around both in the emerging markets, but even in some of the uh, uh, more developed ones, we see quite a bit of resilience. Right. And uh, let me just ask you, um, the, the rise in both oil prices, well, the rise in oil prices, first of all, how much is that going to have an impact on the rest of Asia? Well, it already has. You see already the August inflation data saw a pickup. So, yes, we see that impact. And, you know, it's uh, the, 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 the shock is for, for what... For you know, looking at what has happened on global markets so far, the shock is not going to be as big as what it was one and a half year ago. But definitely, it is a bit un it is a, an unfortunate event. In as these central banks had been looking at maybe starting to think about reducing interest rates eventually, now that this the oil and food price uh, increases will you know delay that. I just want to also put in something else that many people, and I'm not a monetarist, but many people, I think, confuse raising the price of money with monetary tightening. And actually, from my very back of the envelope, look at these things. It seems as if the U.S. only began reducing its balance sheet only a few months ago, curiously. That's not that tightening in the, in the sense of in my clock, excess demand for money coming through. That's not quite as pronounced. And indeed, the financial conditions index of the Chicago Fed continues showing easier financial conditions, not tighter, which is all kind of puts the whole thing on its head. Okay, well, thank you both very much for your thoughts this morning. Good to see you both. You heard there Enzio von Feil, who is a capital preservation specialist at Financial Shield, and Louis Coyce, who is Chief Asia Economist at S&P Global Ratings. <laughs> I'm joined now by John Byrne, who is Vice Chair of Research at the Asian Development Bank Institute in Tokyo. Good morning, John. Good morning, Peter. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Now, Prime Minister Fumio Kishida has come up with a new economic stimulus plan. I think it includes some tax breaks, doesn't it, for, for investments, particularly in favoured industries like semiconductors and batteries. But can you tell us a bit more about it? Yes, that's right. Uh, investment is one of the uh, elements of the new plan. Uh, so measures to stimulate investment through different tax measures in key strategic areas. I think this is a very important uh, measure in, in the current context where, you know, inflows of investment are very important. But that's only one part of the um, overall set of stimulus measures that were announced. Also, um, other measures to combat uh, some stickiness in inflation through subsidies on energy, for example, have been announced as well as measures to stimulate rises in nominal wages, which, as we know, is a key issue in Japan, with mm -hmm. real wages continuing uh, to be falling over the past number of, of many months. And also there are some longer-term structural um, measures in the package uh, related to demographic factors and, and dealing with the issues relating to declining population and, and the ageing population as well. It seems, isn't it, that there's this global trend now to have a more 
activist industrial policy, particularly in relation to trying to support and stimulate favoured sectors like semiconductors and, and batteries and electric vehicles. China's doing it. The European Union's doing it. Uh, the US has been doing it for a little while now as well with the uh, this Inflation Reduction Act, which of course had nothing to do with inflation, but more about supporting those favoured sectors. Is, is this where Japan is heading as well? Well, I think what's important from the perspective of Japan and other economies as well is to, to um, seek policy that will enhance the competitiveness of, of their economies. Um, mm. And this is very important in the current environment where, of course, the external uh, demand and, and the external environment is um, problematic. So measures to increase competitiveness in key sectors, including those related to re renewable energy, for example, and uh, growth sectors, pro productive sectors of the future uh, are very important. And this is really uh, underpinning um, efforts being made in that direction. And does that include subsidies for companies in those sectors or um, providing tax breaks maybe for people who are going to consumers in those sectors? The sort of thing that the EU is complaining about at the moment with China. Yeah, well, I think that, you know, in order to stimulate a, a kickstart to, to these key sectors, uh, there will be some, uh, you know, government support for that, including tax breaks. And, and this was part of the announcement that was made uh, recently, as we touched on a few minutes ago. So there will be, um, you know, support for stimulating growth in these key sectors, uh, key sectors that can enhance potential output in the economy, improve productivity and improve competitiveness. Mm. Isn't it going to be a race to the bottom if all, all the, the big economies around the world are all trying to focus on the same key sectors like semiconductors and batteries and electric vehicles and trying to promote them? All that we're going to get is we're going to get a massive price war um, and, and you know margins being very thin, if not negative, for a lot of these companies in the end. Well, that's one way to look at it. Another way to look at it would be that it would stimulate comp competition at the international and at the regional level. And mm. this can only be uh, beneficial in terms of efficiency, in terms of passing through prices to consumers, and in the end, in terms of stimulating the pass-through of that activity in the sector towards uh, you know economic growth that is sustainable over the longer term. Mm. I'm, I'm wondering that if Japan will just end up facing the same problems from uh, blocks like the EU that, that China is at the moment, and you'll end up with complaints from the EU about unfair uh, you know, subsidies to, to electric vehicle manufacturers and the like. Well, I think you know, it's uncertain as regards uh, whether there will be complaints coming from elsewhere. I think you know, at the stage of the development of the sector, which is quite in the early stages, it's important to provide support to these types of sectors. And um, if that would carry on into the future, whereby it would be impeding um, competition and, you know, basically um, out of line with the international trade order then that would be problematic and that would be something to uh, take a look at at that stage now you mentioned an, another aspect of uh, the prime minister's plan is to try and deal with uh, stickiness in inflation that, that's um, appearing wouldn't, wouldn't the best way to deal with that be for the bank of japan to raise interest rates yes that would be uh, one way to do that but of course you know, it's it's not the objective of um, the central bank to trigger some, uh, you know, downturn in the economy. So at the moment, um, monetary policy decisions are being driven, of course, by inflation expectations. And what we see at the moment is that although the level of inflation is above target and has been above target for quite some time, there are still concerns around the sustainability of that inflation, with the view being that, you know, the, the price pressures are largely external, largely supply driven and would dissipate over some time. Now, there has been an increase in the um, expected inflation for this year, but moving into 2024 and 2025, it's projected that uh, inflation would converge more towards this 2% level. I mean, it does have inflation above its target now for, what is it? I think it's been 15 consecutive months or, or so. But what is it that uh, the Bank of Japan doesn't like about that? It, it sort of indicates it, it's the wrong sort of inflation. Correct, yes. I think, you know, it's not inflation that is driven by domestic demand. It's inflation that's driven by external supply 
constraints and well to some degree at least and and this is why that um the bank of japan is is you know remaining on hold in terms of monetary policy Mm. But the, the Governor Mueda um, keeps teasing us, doesn't he? Every now and then he says something that makes you think, ah, oh, maybe we're, we're getting towards the end of negative rates. He did that Yomiuri Shimbun uh, interview that said, you know, the BOJ could have sufficient data by the end of this year to determine when it could end negative rates. We all get it. The markets get very excited about it. And then a few days later, he walks it, uh, he walks it back. It's, it, it, I'm wondering, does the Bank of Japan, has it got a bit of a communications problem here, do you think because um it's the markets are getting mixed messages sometimes yes i think the markets are sort of jumping on any announcement by um the central bank and then you know i think certainly clarification and and enhanced communication clarity is important as a result of that Mm. um i think that um you know the the statements made by um Governor Oeda were clarified afterwards um, in, in the days after the speech made at Osaka. And, you know, I don't think it was the intention to, to make the signal that there would be an end in, in negative rates, uh, certainly this year. Yeah, certainly so, this year. So maybe markets and, and investors in the markets are sort of reading too much into these uh, statements. They're, they're sort of almost looking for any sign, aren't they, that, uh, that uh, rates could start to rise because it's going to have a significant impact on the markets. And, and they're sort of overinterpreting uh, Governor Ueda's comments. That's right. You know, markets are also looking at the exchange rate implications of continued accommodation in monetary policy. Um, and, you know, I think that obviously one way to strengthen the yen would be to increase the rates. And markets are not really um, taking into account the view that inflation is something that could be um, dissipating over the next months, over the next six months and, and longer as supply side um, pressures would dissipate. Mm. So on, on that, I mean, the Japanese yen now 149 um, against the dollar. It just keeps on sinking. We had the finance minister saying he's watching market trends with a high sense of urgency. But we're now at the level... Um, when the the Bank of Japan or the Finance Ministry last intervened in the markets to try and support it, are, are we close to seeing the same thing happening again? Yes, I mean... As you said, the, the the yen has continued to depreciate strongly. It's close to that level of 150 now, um, and there there is some, um, you know, speculation that there would be an intervention should it get even more close to that 150 level or or even beyond. Um, I think that, you know, you know, we should not always look at the the negative side of the depreciation. It's very um, helpful in terms of boosting the the Japanese stock market, as as you're well aware. Um, And, you know, the weak level of the yen combined with the low cost of of financing is is one of the factors that's driving the stock market at the moment. Mm. Um, On the other hand, the weak yen is, of course, amplifying inflationary pressures. And, you know, I think it will be something that we need to look at closely in, in the coming days, in fact. It's also a problem for the government and its image, isn't it, where you keep on seeing your currency just slide and slide. You eventually get to the point where you sort of, as as a government, you just can't stomach that anymore. You just can't allow your currency uh, to to, to be trashed in the markets like this. Yes, but let's remember, this is not something that we expected at all. Like, um, the yen is strongly driven by what's happening in the US. And you know, persistence in in inflation in the U.S. and longer than expected uh, tightening in the U.S. is is a factor behind that, as well as more recently we have seen oil prices um, go beyond um, $90 per barrel, which is the highest level they've been at since just after the the Russian invasion of of Ukraine. So all of these external factors are driving the the, the yen situation. And obviously, you know, uh, domestic factors are are, are somewhat um, at play as well. But I think that, the, you know, the external uh, side, we did not expect to carry on for this long. 
Mm, but I mean, I, I wonder why the government is so surprised if it, if it really is. I mean, it tries to make out that this is abnormal and not in line with fundamentals, but it, it's perfectly normal what's going on, isn't it? Because uh, the, you've got the US 10-year Treasury yield now at 4.6%, a 16-year high, um, and the 10-year Japanese government bond at about 0.75%. So it, it should be no surprise at all to anyone, really, should it, that the, the yen is sliding. No, absolutely. There's no surprise because, you know, if we believe that the fundamental is the yield spread between the U.S. and Japan, then, you know, a depreciating yen is what we would expect. What we did not expect was that the the yield differential between the U.S. and Japan would persist for so long. And and this is looking like it will um, stay in place for a little bit longer than than we would have expected even last month. I mean, this is this is the problem for everyone globally. I mean, it's happening in Europe as well with uh, with the bunch yields, the UK gilt yields, that um, US Treasury bond yields are, are just rising far more than, uh, than than anyone expected to sort of multi-year highs, multi-decade um, highs almost now, um, and it, and it's having fundamental implications for for economies everywhere and, and financial flows. Yeah, I think it's it's very clear that getting over the the inflation hurdle is. Um, very difficult, certainly as one gets closer to that target level. Um, what's also important to remember is that I don't think we, as I said, we, we did not expect the tightening cycle to last this long. But even if um, rates would pause in the US or other advanced economies, I think it's quite clear that they will remain at a high level for some time. Um, so this will be a factor that is you know, going to impinge upon the level of the yen, certainly in the near term. Well, and, and the markets then still haven't got it right, have they? Because the Fed made it very clear last week in its dot plot uh, that the most they're expecting is two rate cuts um, next year. Um, the markets at the beginning of the year were expecting at least five um, rate cuts, five quarter of a point rate cuts. They're still expecting around four. So they're still out of line with, with what the Fed is, sta- is saying. Yeah, I, I think it's very difficult to get full alignment between the, the central bank and the market expectations in the US or, or anywhere. But I think that, um, you know, demand, sorry, data driven um, policy is obviously something that will, you know, necessitate a change in, in a view um, over a period of time. And this is what we are seeing at the moment. Of course, the expectation expectation at the beginning of the year is different to the expectation now because data has changed in terms of the outlook for the economy in the the US, um, the tightness in the labour market. All of these factors are contributing to what we're seeing at the moment with, um, you know, a less likely uh, softening or a less likely uh, lowering in uh, rates in the US um, over the next few months and into 2024. Uh, and this is the message that markets are starting to get, and they don't seem to like very much looking at the way um, global equities are moving in the last few days, and that is rates are staying higher and they're staying high for longer. Yes, exactly. Rates are staying higher until, you know, the, the data indicates that we are moving closer towards the inflation target, but not only that, in a sustainable way, and also balanced against not triggering a, a recession in the economy. And, and that's that's the key point here, mm-hmm. how to move monetary policy in a manner which brings us towards inflation in a sustainable way without triggering uh, a recession. Okay, John, well, it's always a pleasure talking to you. Thank you very much indeed. That's John Byrne, who is Vice Chair of Research at the Asian Development Bank Institute over in Tokyo. You're listening to Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Money Talk. Thank you for listening this morning. Just a reminder once again to take a look at my website, peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com, where you'll find my daily newsletter with a lot more business and finance news to go with this show. I'll be back tomorrow when my guests will be Andrew Ferris, the CEO of Econosis Advisory, and William Ma, Chief Investment Officer at Grow Investment Group. And with a view from Singapore, it's Jeff Howie, Market Strategist at the Singapore Exchange. Please catch me tomorrow. Money Talk.